Hi, I'm Joanna Rowell, and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. For today's show, I interview two good friends of mine who study cephalopods. My MacBook's dictionary defines a cephalopod as an active predatory mollusk of the large class cephalopoda, such as an octopus or squid. Carrie Alberton works in Cliff Regsdale's lab at the University of Chicago, and she studies how one species of octopus, Octopus bimaculoides, develops during embryology. Judith Pungor is a graduate student at Stanford University, and she studies the octopus visual system, which is really different from the vertebrate visual system like what you or I have, but is nevertheless extremely effective. Octopuses and squids are fascinating creatures because they're so different from vertebrates, and yet they're just as complex in terms of their body plan, their gigantic brains, and their varied behaviors. It's as if these animals have come up with a totally different solution to the question of how you generate an intelligent and complicated animal. And by generate, I mean both in terms of evolutionary history, which occurs over millions of years, and in terms of embryology, where you develop a complex body plan with billions of specialized cells from a single fertilized egg over the course of days, weeks, or months. To learn more about cephalopods, I interviewed Carrie and Judith while they were enjoying a sushi dinner. I think you'll agree that the first question I asked them, which pertained to their dinner order, is an extremely important one. So did you guys order any um, cephalopods? No. <laughs> That's too bad. I, you know, I used to have, take some amount of pride in being able to also enjoy eating my study organism, but with these guys, that, that stopped. Okay, so they weren't eating octopuses, but they were quite willing to talk about them. I mean, I, I love talking to, to particularly kids about them because, you know, you can kind of blow their minds with how alien they are, <laughs> you know, in the list of things that octopuses have the, the list or the list of things that octopuses have that you wouldn't expect is kind of mind-blowing. Like, they taste their food with their arms, and they have three hearts, and blue blood, and can change color instantly. And a donut-shaped brain that surrounds their esophagus. Three hearts, blue blood, instant color changing, and a donut-shaped brain. But that's only the start of the octopus's peculiarities. Here's Judith talking about the octopus's visual system, which is very strange. Um, well, I study their visual systems, which I find really fascinating because they are as good as the visual systems of vertebrates. So they're constantly in competition with not only fish, but um, you know the the giant squid and the sperm whale have been in this you know pretty famous battle for for ages now. Um, and they're visually good competitors of these much um, more evolved or derived animals, if you will, um, that are not at all related to them. So our, our most common ancestor with an octopus didn't have anything nearly like our visual systems. It probably had some sort of light-sensitive spot somewhere in its body that could kind of tell if it was day or night. But now octopuses have developed um, visual systems that compete with our own. Um, completely independently of ours, so it's a form of convergent evolution, like bat wings and bird wings that came from two different sources, but have come to do the same thing. Um, and it's kind of crazy that you can convergently evolve something as complex as an eye. So I'm studying how um, how that eye is set up and, and wired, and how that might be similar or different from what we came to have. 
So what are you discovering? Like, what, what is different about the octopus eye? Um, one of the main things that I'm studying is um, the fact that they can see polarized light. Mm. So they're actually colorblind, which is kind of crazy to think about when you think about how they're really famous for their camouflage. Like, they can blend super well into their environments, but they actually only have, um, for the vast majority of them, one type of opsin, so one um, sort of photoreceptor uh, species in their eye. Um, they can only see blue light, which actually sort of makes sense when you think about it, because blue light is the only one, uh, is the only kind of light that can really permeate um, deep into the ocean. So I think mm -hmm. at about 12 feet or so, you lose most red and green light. Um, and yeah, so they only they're only sensitive to to blue light, but they have polarization vision, which means they can see the different polar like polarizations of light. So light is a wave that um, you know the frequency of the wave as it comes at you is what we register as color, um, but they can also see the directionality of the wave, so they can see if it's coming side to side or up and down, um, and they can use that to um, to communicate with each other. So their skin can specifically reflect uh, these different these different orientations of light. Um, they can use it to break a lot of uh, camouflage in the in the natural world. So not a lot of animals can see polarized light. Um, and light is generally very diffuse and like of all sorts of polarizations underwater, but when it reflects off like a fish scale, uh, some of it gets oriented into like the same sort of direction, um, more so than just ambient ocean light. So they can use it to create contrast where there isn't contrast and find prey items, for example, or predators. So I'm studying how, uh, how they um, detect that, how they organize that information um, and if it's, you know, a lot of people think that it's sort of like the analog to their color vision. Mm. And, you know, see if it's organized kind of like our color vision or not. Judith has just told us about how octopuses see. So now let's turn to Carrie and hear a little bit about how octopuses develop. Carrie's had a long-standing fascination with mollusk development, such as the spiral cleavage pattern that characterizes snail development. But cephalopods have such a strange body plan that's very different from most mollusks, or any other animal for that matter. So the question Carrie want, wants to know is how is this strange body plan set up during development? You have to go through development from a single cell up to the multicellular organism that you will be, whether you are a person, a fish, a sea urchin, or a cephalopod. And we understand how people and sea urchins and flies all develop and you know we're getting a pretty good understanding of this group of you know kind of distantly related animals that do all kinds of weird things like annelids and particularly mollusks um, how they go from being a single cell to having their full adult body with all their various organs in their various appropriate places. Right, and cephalopods are actually mollusks. Cephalopods are mollusks. So they're related so, to snails. Snails and clams, which don't have, you know, well, some snails do, uh, clams have eyes, I suppose, but they don't really have what you'd call a brain. Mm. And there are some other kinds of mollusks that basically look like worms that are either contained in, you know, little spiky things or in, you know, in little shells, but they're they're not very complicated looking things. And then you look at an octopus or a squid where you have all of these arms that are really highly innervated and they, you know, can move in all these directions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they've got big, big eyes and big brains and they can swim really fast and they're amazing predators. And so understanding how you set up this really weird body is the question that I've been spending most of my time on. 
And the nifty thing about development is we've started to learn as we've looked at very different kinds of animals that they use often very similar genes in either similar or different ways to make their, their respective bodies. So I've been interested in looking at genes that we know from people and fish and flies and sea urchins, how they are used during development uh, of, of the very weird cephalopod body plan. Would you, would you take us through the development of an octopus, just sort of in a very general, descriptive way? Sure. They actually have these really, really big eggs that are laid by, by their moms. Um, and a lot of cephalopods actually uh, will lay their eggs right at the end of their life, so they'll only reproduce once. And for octopuses, the moms will attach their eggs to some hard surface, and they'll sit there and brood them until the end of their life. So here you have these eggs, and, and the species that I work on have these really, really big eggs. Um, By big, what do you mean? They're like the size of my pinky nail, which isn't a very good reference for most people, but uh, <laughs> it's a, they're about a centimeter long. Okay. Um, so they, you know, they will be sit there glued down onto some hard surface, and they'll have their mom, you know, tending them. And so as development starts, you know, you have the first couple cell divisions, and this actually happens at one end of the egg, and it doesn't go all the way through. So the embryo sits at one end of the egg. Yeah. The whole cephalopod body plan will develop at one end of this disc. It, it basically looks like concentric circles in the beginning. So you'll have the mantle, which is that big part that sits over the eyes that most people think is where the brain is, but that's actually where they keep their guts. <laughs> um, that develops at the very middle, and then you'll have um, their nervous system kind of developing just a little bit outside that, and then they have their arms at the very periphery. Mm. Um, and so, so they actually kind of look like little flowers to me when I look at them under the microscope uh, when, when their body plan is starting to be laid out. And then uh, the different structures balloon upwards, right? Yep. They, once, once the, the different organ primordia have their, their spaces, they'll start to, to become sticky outy. So then you'll have, have these little organs that are poking out of, the, out of the yolk, and then they kind of come together at the bottom to eventually look like a little octopus or squid. Mm-hmm. So when they hatch, they look like a little tiny octopus. Mm-hmm. And, and ours just kind of hatch out and start crawling around on the bottom and behaving like an adult octopus right away, <laughs> which, is, which is really pretty adorable. And would you talk a little bit about um, how you raise them from hatchlings? Sure. And, um, and some of the challenges and <laughs> some of the rewards that come from that? <laughs> so, so keeping... Keeping cephalopods alive in general in captivity is, is not a terribly easy thing to do, and it's made more difficult when you are in Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, far, because far away from we the don't, ocean. <laughs> we don't have very much access to the ocean here. Um, so, you know, you have to maintain a tank that's big enough to house them and all of the things that they need. Um, and to be able to deal with the amount of waste that they generate. But I actually, because I don't have easy availability of little little shrimp and other such things that they like to eat, I actually will cut up pieces of clam and feed it to them 
um, on, on little sticks. I will, I will basically play airplane with my little baby octopuses um, until they eat. And, and where did you get the clams from? The local grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> they, they always think I'm very odd uh, making regular visits to pick up several, you know, like a half dozen clams <laughs> twice a week. Uh, I've started to get to know them pretty well. <laughs> and some but, of them you've raised up to? Yeah, you know, uh, I've raised... A number of them up to adulthood. I actually had some that um, that laid eggs in my tank, so they they made it all mm. the way to to maturity, and they they're really fascinating uh, little animals. Um, they we, inter- they interact with yes, you. Yes, I had one that that liked to follow me around the tank, so I'd be, you know, doing something at one end of the tank, and he'd just be sitting there, kind of close to the edge with his arms right at the water line, and he'd be squirting water out at me. Um, <laughs> you know, kind of reminiscent of, I don't know, a cat batting at your foot or something. <laughs> but, you know, kind of wave his arms out, demanding demanding food or attention, or probably wanting to lure me into the tank, so, you know, you can I eat could you. be dinner. Mm. At this point, I asked both Carrie and Judith a question that scientists tend to both love and hate. Why should we care? Why should we care about octopuses? This initiated a conversation about how you evolve complexity, uh, which is a question that mollusks, with their incredible diversity, can help us explore. So you study embryology and you study vision. Um, what do you think the benefit is of studying these really bizarre creatures? <laughs> They're fun. <laughs> Well, they're really cool, and they get people interested in biology. That's certainly important, and I also personally think that we we've, we've know a lot about very a select few things, and the, the more, the broader we cast our net, the more we'll learn. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what's, we've learned that what's true in flies and what's true in fish can, you know, they can sometimes be the same, but they're also different. They're peculiarities to the system. And the broader sense that we have of, you know, what is normal and what is peculiar, I think will inform a lot of the uh, future work. And I think also the question of how you evolve complexity is, is something that the octopus can really help us answer. Because when you study vertebrates, you know, we're all really similar. Like, looking at your cat over there, she's not that different from me. I mean, she's covered in fur and small and stuff, but, you know, we both have pretty similar brains and we both have forelimbs and hind limbs and, you know, spinal cord running through our, the dorsal part of our body, but octopuses are just completely different. So how do you get to that? How do you evolve complexity? Yeah. And how, well, how do you make such different things? I actually think mollusks are a great place to ask how, how do you make diversity? And how do you go from, you know, starting from a relatively, relatively shared starting point? Um, how do you make such weird animals with either really big brains or no brains at all? You know, things that, that just bury themselves in the mud and sit there breathing in and out water <laughs> to, to, you know, hunters to, you know, snails. I mean, like the, the range of different kinds of bodies and different life histories in mollusks is pretty big. 
Judith also highlighted the fact that cephalopods can help us understand how you evolve not only complex body plans, but complicated behaviors as well. An octopus behavior is fascinating. It's really amazing the lengths octopus take to hide their deliciousness. But the question that's really difficult to answer is how do they learn these behaviors? Like all these crazy things you see about them, you know, mimicking halibuts and mimicking, <laughs> you know, coral sea snakes and all of that. When you think about that in terms of the fact that they're, that as Carrie said, a lot of these adults will, like a lot of these moms will lay their eggs and die, if not right when they hatch, then a little bit before. So they don't have any example animals to learn this behavior from. Hmm. They don't have anything to learn and mimic from like many of the vertebrates do. And while, you know, probably a whole lot of, of snails and stuff don't either. Mimicking a coral king snake is kind of a complex behavior that might not be just like a reflex arc. Can you describe that? Um, well, there's the mimic octopus in Indonesia. If you guys have not seen it, you should look this up on YouTube. You'll be entertained for hours. Um, and, and this little uh, mimic octopus uh, is, is incredibly good at mimicking other animals for all sorts of different purposes. Um, either to, like most of them I think are to, to threaten off other animals, but some of them um, are definitely for camouflage. So it will, you know, make itself really big and dark, and which kind of just generally startles anything that is small in the ocean because they figure big dark things are looming over them and that's not really great. Um, but they can also do these really specific behaviors that look strikingly uncannily like they're mimicking actual animals that are in their environment. So the coral king snake is what is an incredibly venomous um, sea snake that everybody pretty much wants to avoid. And this little octopus will like tuck itself down in its burrow and just put out two arms in this very like snake-like form and color them black and white striped to look just pretty much exactly like the coral king snake. He'll also, um, they've been seen, uh, so octopuses have this funky way of swimming. It's kind of a lot like squids, right? They do, they go sort of butt first and they jet along, <laughs> like when they really need to get somewhere. They, they kind of look a lot like their cousins, the squids, when they're getting ready to be. Um, but these guys will, uh, will like sort of flatten their arms around and do this like undulating motion and it really pretty much looks like a flatfish <laughs> swimming along the bottom which is not nearly as like delicious or or enticing as an octopus. An octopus has no bones, an octopus has I believe no ability to make fat. Like they're just they're incredibly tasty chewy bits of delicious protein that would be pretty much what anyone in the ocean would love to consume. So they're kind of, you know, they're like the prime rib of, of the animal kingdom. So they're making themselves look kind of like Kentucky Fried Chicken, just like undulating along the bottom. Um, and one other one of the crazy things they do is um, do this really bizarre swimming behavior that octopuses never really do, which is instead of swimming along sort of jetting and streamlined like a squid, they'll like pull up way off the bottom of the, the sand um, and stick their arms out in this really bizarre sort of like akimbo formation and just pulse along really, really slowly. And when you look at it closely, it looks just like how a lionfish looks when it swims. And lionfish, again, is an incredibly venomous thing that things don't want to eat. So all these bizarre, complex behaviors are presumably not something that was shown to them ever. Right, because their um, mom pretty much ever. dies before they are hatched. Exactly, exactly. Or right at when they're hatched. So somehow they just know how to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's an interesting question. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, when does a reflex arc end and a complex behavior begin and what governs that?
In addition to their strange body plans, sensory systems, and behaviors, octopuses are also remarkable in that they have an amazing ability to heal. For instance, Carrie told me a bit about octopus arm regeneration. So the center of each octopus arm contains masses and masses of neurons. It's as if each octopus has eight spinal cord emanating from its body. So an octopus's arm regeneration is a bit like the regeneration of a spinal cord. They, they actually have pretty amazing abilities to, uh, to regrow many things and to heal. I've, I've actually gotten a number of adult octopuses that have you know, little bits of arm missing and they're just regrowing a new one out of the stump and they look just like a perfect little new arm. So when, when you know, they have an injury and they lose all or part of their arm, the wound will kind of heal over fairly quickly, actually, and no scar is produced and it just, you know, it, within a couple days it starts to grow out a new one. Within 10 days I've seen little suckers on the end of them. It's really pretty amazing. And you can chop off one, you can chop off all eight, and they grow back really fast. Oh. So how is this regeneration different from, say, the regeneration of a salamander leg? Salamanders, um, when they regrow an arm, they need to have the nerves present in order to get innervation, to have, to have nerves go into that, that regrowing limb. Whereas cephalopods, um, we know at the very least they can regenerate new neurons right there because Basically, their arm is a tube of neurons surrounded by, you know, a circle of muscles. So, so as the arm grows out, they regrow their whole spinal cord, mm. which so, is pretty awesome. And I don't, I don't think we actually have any examples of complicated centralized nervous systems regenerating. I feel like octopuses are just so filled with growth and life that they just grow and grow until they die. Yeah, but that is basically true. Um, you know, the hatchlings, I feel like you could just sit there and watch them grow. I think I read a report that they can grow like 10% of body weight a day, and they do that basically through their whole lives. So, you know, they hatch out at, at a centimeter. So my the species that we work on hatches out at a centimeter, and, and within a year to a year and a half, they're a good, what, 18 inches from end to end? From arm to arm. Well, I was meaning from, like, the end of their mantle to the tips of their arms. You know, they're, they just grow that whole time. In fact, that's how the giant Pacific octopuses get so big. Unlike octopus bimaculoides, which only lives for a year, the giant Pacific octopus gets so big by living for three to four years and growing that entire time. It's a bit frightening to imagine what would happen if we could somehow extend their lifespan. Perhaps you'd end up with a real-life kraken or some kind of devastating squid-nado. Anyway, on that note, it's time to end the show. Thank you so much to Carrie Alberton and Judith Pungor for being on today's show and talking about octopuses, which is, according to Carrie, my favorite thing to talk about. And thank you for listening. And if you want to hear more, check us out on grox.net, Facebook, Twitter, or iTunes. From everyone here at the Grok Science Show, including Charles Lee, Frank Ling, and Forrest Golden, I'm Joanna Rowell. Have a wonderful week, and keep on grokking.